Amen. Thank you, Steve. Yes, my wife is here. She was not at the second service last week, so if you want to meet her, please do. She is uh, much cooler than I am. Well, it's good to be here. We have been very honored and and blessed just to be in this church for the last two weeks now and next week as well and hopefully more in the future. Um, You know, we've known Stephen Randall since the beginning of Vintage, but we have also been gone since the beginning of Vintage. And so um, it's really cool to come back and see all that God is doing and and just be a part of it, really. And so thank you guys for that. Um, this morning, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Last week, if you were here, we were in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. We talked about Paul's prayer that he prays for the church in Ephesus. And this week, we're going to be mostly in Ephesians 3. So, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't I read the passage for us? We'll have it on the screen, and then hopefully we'll have a few notes on the screen after that as we jump in. And then after I read it, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, this morning, I pray that as we read these scriptures, God, that you would speak Lord, that you would move our hearts to respond to you, to understand you, to touch you. Lord, that we would, our our eyes would be open to see you. And that everything in our life we would realize is to be lived and it was given for the purpose of you and your glory. Lord, I pray that your words would be present, would be alive this morning. We don't just want text. We don't just want theology. We don't just want the book of Ephesians. But, Lord, we want you to speak this morning. And we want to encounter you this morning. So would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. Now, if you were here last week, you probably realized this already, but The book of Ephesians is not the easiest book to understand. And so this morning, you're going to see that again, because Paul, what he writes is very um, long winded and with lots of big words. And it's it's difficult to understand, but it's also difficult to explain. And so I'm going to do my best this morning to explain that. But keep in mind and, and take notes if it's helpful, because The things that Paul tries to communicate are very grand in their scope. And so it's uh, sometimes that can be difficult. So if you find yourself, you know, checking out just uh, that's why Steve prayed those prayers this morning, because it's like, whoa, okay, And it's very easy to check out, you know, with this. But I want to encourage you to not do that. 
and instead to ask the Holy Spirit to help you or to help us as we look at this together. Now, last week we talked about Ephesians 1, and we looked at the prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, that he, he prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of their hearts would be open to know him, to see him, and that they would know the power that is towards us, towards them, towards believers who, who have confessed faith in Christ. And that power he described was like the power when he raised Jesus from the dead, seated him in the heights of the heavens. Now, some, one of the things I mentioned last week, I gave a little bit of context to the book of Ephesians, and I want to do that again this morning. I want to repeat what I gave you last week, three points of context, but then I want to give you three more points of context, like an outline for the book. And I think that will help you and help us as we read the book of Ephesians. So the three things I mentioned last week, the first point of context that's important to remember when you read the book of Ephesians is that... Um, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman world. So Ephesus in the Roman world, it was one of the largest cities. The city of Ephesus had about 200, 250,000 people, which that may sound small now, but in that time, that was large. Ephesus was probably the, the center of all of Asia Minor, which is the western, modern-day western coast of Turkey. And it was probably the center. I mean, I, I compare it to like Los Angeles or Southern California. It's a place that people desired to go on vacation to. There, it was a port city, you know, right there on the water. A lot of culture influence there and um, a lot of economic influence. And that was Ephesus. Most people who lived in, in Asia Minor at that time, they probably wanted to go to a place like Ephesus. They wanted to leave their home for a time and see what it was like because they had only heard about it. But not only uh, is it important to see Ephesus in the Roman world, but you also have to see the religious dynamic that was taking place in Ephesus. Ephesus was home of the goddess Artemis and the Greek goddess of Diana. It's the same thing, which, uh, as I mentioned last week, you know, very confusing, whatever. The goddess Artemis was like the goddess of fertility and hunting and game like that. When you look it up, that's what you find. I don't understand all that stuff. I didn't study, you know, Roman or Greek mythology, but. It was an, a large attraction, so much so that it's one of, the ancient, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so it was very popular for that reason. And we read in Acts 19, so popular that the city officials and the city people, they were selling these, these little statues to Artemis. And the gospel began to move in such a way in Ephesus that people stopped worshiping Artemis and stopped buying these little statues that Demetrius was selling. And instead, they began to worship Jesus. And in Acts 19, this guy Demetrius, he gets upset about this. Hey, this guy Paul, he's preaching this gospel, and nobody is listening to the goddess Artemis, and nobody, more importantly, nobody's buying our little statues. Nobody's buying all this stuff that we're selling about the goddess Artemis. And so they get upset, and this riot breaks out and all these things. But not only that, one of the greatest revivals in church history was in the city of Ephesus. And when we read about it in Acts 19, it was so great that some of these religious people who worshipped the goddess Artemis, they would come into the city square with their religious books and they burned them in public. I mean, that's a powerful revival. I mean, we're talking about, again, compare this to like, a, like Los Angeles or New York or something. One of the largest cities, one of the culture centers... And the thing that was most prominent in that city was the goddess Artemis. 
And the people who were most devoted to the goddess Artemis, what they did was they took these books in the public square and they burned them in front of everyone. That's how impactful the revival was. That was how powerful the spread of the gospel was in the city of Ephesus. And then the third piece of context that I shared last week was about um, the character of this letter, the letter to the Ephesians. And the character of this letter, it's a little bit different from some of Paul's other letters. He doesn't necessarily rebuke. He doesn't confront. He doesn't call out sin. He's not writing to them because there's any particular problem. Instead, the tone of this letter is much more worshipful. And he gives uh, some things that seem complex, but the point is to see the glory of God and the purposes of God. Okay, so that's just a little bit of refresh, just a little bit of context to remind us what we talked about. Now I want to also give you, and I didn't do this last week, I should have, but I didn't. I want to give you a short outline. Now this is really short, okay? So just track with me a couple more minutes. A simple outline to, as you're reading the book of Ephesians, a simple outline to understand it. As you digest it, as you read it, how can you frame it? Now, the way that I look at it, the first two chapters are mostly about theology. The third chapter is a word that I like to use called, well, not I like to use, but a very scholastic or academic word called missiology. And all it means is mission or how missions happens. And then chapters four through six are another difficult word called ecclesiology. But all ecclesiology is, is the study of the church. All right. Now, if you forgot everything I just said, just remember, chapters 1 and 2 are about God. Chapter 3 is about mission and the purpose of mission. Chapter 4 through 6 is about the church. Okay? In chapters 1 through 2, or 1 and 2, there's very little about you. There's very little about me. It's mostly about what God has done to for us. He has done these things for us. It's the the greatness of what he has done. He talks about how we as Gentiles, we were alienated. This is the language he uses. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel because Israel was the promise. They were the inheritance and we were alienated. And then he said what Christ did was he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. That's the, again, the language he uses and made us into one new man with them. Now, those are very complicated things and take time to unpack, but that's how he describes in chapter 1 and 2. This is all about God and what he's done. And then in chapter 3, where we're going to spend our time this morning, he talks about the reason for mission, the purpose of mission. And then chapter 4 through 6 is about the church and how the church should be established and how we should function together as one. The reason this is important and the reason I like the way Paul uh, seems to break down this book is because all of our mission and all of the ways that we function as a church, they have to be built upon the way we understand God. Okay, Chapters 1 and 2 are about God and what God has done. And if we are to do anything right as believers, it has to first be understood through who God is. We can't function correctly as a church and as a body if we don't first understand who he is and what he's done. We don't know the reason for our mission if we don't first, again, understand who he is and what he's done. Okay. so these points of context 
in my opinion, bring a deeper level of meaning and impact when we read these scriptures. Now, as we get into chapter 3, I want to give a little bit of a preface for why and, and what I think Paul is trying to communicate here. In the Western world, and not just the Western world, but mostly, I think, we have a tendency, especially as young people, to be very, especially the church, be very concerned and focused on our callings. And those are, our calling is important. We all have callings. All of us are, God has called us to do something or to be somebody or all these different things. And I I remember too, you know, I'm, I'm only 31 now, I'm not that old, but I remember you know, when I was deciding to do missions and, and wondering, man, what is God's calling on my life? What is my purpose for being here? And those things are good, but there is one problem that can happen when we get focused on our calling. Sometimes when we focus too much on our calling, most of what we do and most of the way we interpret God, the Bible, and life becomes very centered around us. A lot of young people that I talk to today, we become hyper-focused on this calling and this purpose. In fact, one, just give you a blatant example, in 2019 and 2020, I think, but I know in 2019, one of the most desired um, things for, for millennials especially to be was an influencer. One of the most desired professions or careers for millennials was to have, you know, a million Instagram followers. Because there is this tendency that we get to be so focused on us. And again, I know God wants to use you. God wants to use me. God wants to use all of us. But we've gotten to the place, and a lot of this is because of our Western culture, where we're hyper-focused on ourselves and what that calling should be. And, And then the attempts that we make to try and Bring it about. But Paul, in these passages, in reference to his own calling, he says that instead of looking at our calling that way, what if we start to view our calling in light of God's purposes? And that's where I want to take us this morning. Instead of being focused on the entitlement and the rights and the independence and the individuality that we have and that we want, what if instead we were focused on something greater, and that's God's purpose and God's plan? So that's the preface, and that's the point of these where we're going in this passage. Now, for this passage, I'm going to give you six propositions, and I think we have slides. We have slides. Yes. I'm going to give you six propositions And the way that I break down this passage and the way I'm going to do it is in reverse order because it makes more sense that way. I know Paul's complicated, but then the way you communicate like has to be that much more complicated. Gosh, well, it makes more sense when you look at it in reverse order. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the whole passage again and we can read it together. And then I'm going to I'm going to the six different points will be on the screen and I'm going to take a moment and describe each one of them. So verse seven. Paul says this of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. 
To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The first point, God's intention. God's intention is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. That's verse 10 that's copied there. So that, Paul says, right? We're taking it in reverse order here. Verse 10, Paul says, all of these things are true so that the church may make known the manifold wisdom of God. So let's, Paul's desired outcome that we understand is that the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known. Okay, take it that simple. His intention and his desire for all of creation is that this manifold wisdom of God may be made known. Now, we know God sends his son to the earth and he sends Jesus as a savior in one of the most unthinkable ways possible. So much so that even the Jews who had the prophecies, who had the scriptures, who should have been able to predict that Jesus coming and see Jesus coming, couldn't even recognize him. God's wisdom is so far beyond what we can comprehend that those who should have known him and should have seen him were caught off guard. They did not see him. And that is what the manifold wisdom of God is, that Jesus comes to the earth. But he doesn't just say the manifold wisdom of God. He doesn't just give his intent He tells us who this manifold wisdom of God is to be made known to. That's the second point. So the first is he gives the intention of God to make known the manifold wisdom of God. The second, he tells us who the audience is. Okay, the audience that Paul is saying this is made known to are the powers and the principalities in the heavenly place, in the heavenly realms, the rulers and authorities. Now, if you're like me, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I do missions and I share the gospel a lot. And when I first began this journey, more times than not, I try to share the gospel and I'm talking to a person. And that's good, right? I imagine most of you, when you share the gospel, you're talking to a person. And that's the way we think about it. But Paul here is actually saying that there's an audience that's beyond that person. And it's more important to communicate to that audience. And that audience are the powers and the principalities, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes this even further. And he says that the powers and the principalities of the air are holding captive the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot believe. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. These powers and these principalities are holding their minds captive. And so when we preach, when we speak the manifold wisdom of God, which is the gospel, when we speak this message, what happens is that those powers and those principalities begin to be loosed. So that that person that you're talking to, who's right in front of you, they can now make that choice to believe. 
the gods of this world have blinded their eyes. The gods of this world are holding their minds captive. So our audience that we're speaking to, yes, we talk to people, but our audience that we're speaking to is powers and principalities. Now, in doing missions with Muslim background people, one thing I've learned very quickly is that I cannot convince these people of anything. (laughs) It's pretty hard to convince anyone of anything anyway, but when it comes to Islam and the gospel, there couldn't be two things that are further opposite. And these are two religions, not only that, but two religions that have been back and forth for centuries. And one time, I remember I was, I was sitting in a, having tea with seven Muslim young people. And these guys, there's seven of them. I've only known them for a few months at this point. They know that I'm a Christian. You know, they know that I'm from America. Um, and they, you know, they, I'm there doing school. I was a university student. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I, I want to share the gospel with these guys. They've known each other probably their whole lives. But I want to share the gospel with them. However, I decided, like, at this point, I should probably go about it a different way because I still have not seen any of my hundred different gospel presentations work. Uh, Because it's at the point in some of these countries, honestly, what the missionaries and people who study missions, what they say is, hey, nothing's really working. Just try everything. That's how that's how difficult it is. It is very hard. I'm smiling and laughing about it, but it's so challenging and it's such a hard soil. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I've, I've, I know how to present it very concise. Not only that, but if I want to, I could get into a debate with these guys. I could probably win. In fact, I could poke the holes, holes in Islam that they don't see and show them how not smart it is to believe that. And I'm thinking I could do one of many of these things. But instead, I'm like, man, these none of them have worked in the past. Why don't I just wait? So I'm sitting with these seven guys and I wait. I take a step back. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you open up a door for me to share with them? Would you open up an opportunity for me to share the gospel with them in a way that they need to hear it? And as I do that, they actually ask me a question. And they ask me, why am I a Christian? And when I get that question from a Muslim background person, my, the, the place that I start is when I became a Christian. Because for most of them... They think of religion as something you're born with. Okay? And that's foreign to us. I get it. But for them, if you're born in this country, you're a Muslim. If you're born in America, you're a Christian. That's the way that they view you. That's the way they view me. Anyone from the West is a Christian because they were born in a quote-unquote Christian country. So when I share, when I'm getting ready to share, the first thing I say is I was not born a Christian. And immediately I have their attention. And as I'm sharing this, I'm thinking, man, what do I say? Right. I know what doesn't work. Nothing works. But what? So what do I say, Lord? And I feel the Lord nudge me. Why don't you just talk to them about how I've changed you, how I've touched your life? And so I start to share my testimony. Now, obviously, if you've done gospel training, you know that sharing your testimony is the best way to share the gospel because no one can debate about the power of a transformed life. And so I start to share my testimony, but something different happens this time. I've done that a lot also, but something different happens. And what happens is that I start to remember what God has done in my life, and I'm moved as I think about it. 
And I'm not so much sharing to these guys anymore. I'm more remembering the story of God in my life. I think of Psalm 45. My heart is overflowed with a pleasing theme as I recite my verses to the king. That's Psalm 45. And I think of this, and it's almost like I'm in a prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit just comes down. I'm sitting with these seven Muslim guys at a tea shop, mind you. Not at a prayer meeting. Nothing crazy's happening. But it feels like I'm at a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit starts to move. Because all I'm doing is I'm giving thanks as I remember what he's done to me. And I start to share this story with them. And it's, they start to look at me in a different kind of way because what they realize is this is different than what we've heard. Because when you share the gospel in this way, you're not sounding like a clanging gong or a cymbal. You're communicating something that is alive, something that has changed you, and you want to share it. This is not a religious task. I didn't wake up that morning and say, I need to share the gospel five times. I happened to be sitting in this moment, and as the Lord opened a door, I shared about how I see him, how much I love him because of the things that he has done and because of who he is. And what happens is that I'm who I'm talking to. Yes, I'm talking to people, but who I'm really directing this to are the powers and the principalities in the air. And something begins to change because they realize, uh oh, there's life here. There's something moving here. And now those powers and those principalities, they start to shake. They start to get nervous because there's a real presence of God that comes into the midst. Now, Paul here, that is why he communicates this. We are speaking to an audience that's above people. We can't convince anyone of anything. In our own strength, we cannot convince them to believe the gospel. We speak to the powers and to the principalities and God moves and their minds are loosed so that they can make that choice and believe. That's the second point. The third, Paul tells us the means with which this happens. This is, again, the same verse, verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. His intention is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. He does that to who? To the powers and principalities. And he does that how? Through the church. His desire is to use us, not just us in this room, us across the world, who are professing believers in Jesus as the church. He wants to make known his son to the world. John 17 is one of Jesus's few prayers. He prays a few times, but that's one of his few prayers and the longest called the high priestly prayer. And in John 17, Jesus says, I pray father that you would make them one in me as I am in you. So the world may know that you sent me. God desires to use the church. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of our, all of our callings that we think are so great. He doesn't need them. But he chooses to use us because he enjoys that. He enjoys that partnership and that friendship. Okay, we're halfway through. Is everybody still with me? Okay. 
So he talks about his intention, the audience, and then the means with which God wants to accomplish it. That's the first three. The fourth thing that Paul says is that he will... Screens? Boom. No. Ready? Go. Okay, no. He will establish the church, and he establishes the church as they encounter the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me. Now we're going back two verses. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the way that God is going to use the church is is as the church starts to see these unsearchable riches, as they start to encounter his greatness, as they start to touch his glory, then that same glory and that same greatness of God is reflected to the world. The unsearchable riches of God, just like the story I mentioned a moment ago, when I'm talking to these seven guys, they're seeing that this is not a religion. This is not some religious act that I'm doing and sharing the gospel. I have no sort of quota I'm trying to meet and people converting and times I'm trying to share the gospel. What they are hearing is that there is something better than what they are currently living and what they are currently believing. There are riches that are unsearchable. Things that for all eternity, we will be looking to know and understand. And those things lead us to worship, to adoration. And it is the most satisfying place. And he is the most satisfying person. So as we, as the, as the church, are established in these unsearchable riches, those things are made known. The fifth point that Paul goes into is the method that this happens. So he's gone from very cosmic and he's going smaller and smaller as he gets to his point. The method with which this happens with which what happens, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to powers and principalities through the church, right? The method with which this happens, he says, is through preaching. To me, I am the very least of all the saints, but this grace was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, there's this quote, and I I love this quote, and I love the point behind this quote, but I'll just say it. There's this quote. I can't even remember who it was, but um, preach at all times. And if necessary, use words. I love that quote. At the same time, we have to use words. We have to speak. Paul says that we preach the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have an audience of 500. That doesn't mean that you have to have a pulpit. That doesn't mean you have to be a preacher. That doesn't mean any of those things. That doesn't mean that you have to, uh, sometimes I yell, sorry. That doesn't mean you have to yell, right? You don't have to do all of those things, but we have to preach. In fact, we probably shouldn't yell. In fact, we should probably be very sensitive. We should probably be very clear and loving, but we have to preach. And right now, I think in the world, in the Western world, in the church, preaching is something that is starting to be criticized in some ways and lessening more and more. But this is the method that God will use. 
we, will, we are called to preach. Again, it doesn't matter if you're a preacher. We are called to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. So the method is through preaching. And then final point, the sixth point. The one who uses that method is a vessel, a weak and broken human vessel. Paul says, to me, I am the very least of all the saints, but this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul, he knows himself. He knows that just moments ago, just a few years earlier, he was actually the persecutor of Christians. Just moments ago, he was the one who was out to kill Christians. That was Paul, Saul, right? Before God encountered him, he was very much against the gospel. And so he's very, very in tune with who he is as the least of all the saints. But he says still that God has called him to preach the gospel. God chooses to use weak and broken people, not just the church, right? We, we went from very big to smaller and smaller and smaller. Not just the church, who's in the middle here, to do that. And not just preaching, but a weak and broken vessel who will preach those things. That's the way that God wants to use us. Now, to take this back to where we began, our temptation, especially as Americans, is to think of our rights and our independence and all of our me, me, me stuff, mostly in light of ourselves and not many other things. We're very myopic, focused on ourselves. More times than not in our lives, we begin navel-gazing, where you're just looking too far in front of, too, sorry, too close in front of you, and you need to be looking much further out. And especially as young people, I think, Christian young people, we are so concerned about the will of God for our life and God's calling on our life and that maybe we'll miss God's calling. And, and those are legitimate, right? There is a place for that. Please don't hear me wrong. There is a place for that. However, sometimes we get so overwhelmed and concerned by those things because we don't understand that our role is like the vessel. As a vessel, we are simply here in the span of this. God has much more intentions for your, your calling and your, the will of him, his, his will for your life than just that. It's not an end in and of itself. And so when we begin to think, oh, there is a greater story at play, then we find, okay, my calling happens here. And the reason it's happening is so that God can do these things that we just went through. So that God can make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and principalities in the air. So that he can use us in that journey and in that aim. One of the reasons I think that this is important is... I'll just reference this song that we sang earlier. I pulled up the lyrics. It's the Christ Be Magnified song. I love this song. But I just want to read the bridge, and then I want to say a few things about it. 
The bridge says this, I won't bow to idols, I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice, because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings, I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just the doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will be singing, my song will be the same. I love that song. I love those lyrics, very biblical lyrics. But many times I feel myself, I have a disconnect to what those words say. I have a disconnect because I haven't experienced that suffering. I haven't experienced that death. Right? Sometimes the Western ways that we quote unquote experience suffering, I don't think that was what God was talking about when he said you will experience suffering. You know, some of the persecution we experience, I don't think that that's quite what he meant when he said you will be hated by all men. I think it's a little bit different. And when I read those words, I I sing them, I believe them, but I feel a disconnect because I don't know that I've related to that. And what I sense is that when we become so focused on this calling, it could actually lead us to escape some of that suffering. Right? If we don't find our calling in the grand purpose of God's intention for creation, and instead we are so overwhelmingly concerned about what our calling is and not missing the will of God for our lives, then we are focused on us and self-preservation and self-protection. So when the time comes for you to suffer or when the time comes for you to be persecuted, You're more thinking, okay, how can I preserve myself in this moment? And instead of praying a prayer of God, give me endurance in the face of this persecution, you begin to pray the wrong prayer, in my opinion. It's valid, but maybe a better way to say it is you begin to pray a prayer from the wrong place of God. Remove this suffering from me and don't ever let me experience that type of pain. Now, again, it's not wrong to pray that God would remove suffering or remove persecution. We pray those prayers. But what I'm trying to speak to is the intention of our hearts. If your intent is set on self-preservation, if your intent is set on self-protection, that's not God's will. And if we become so overly concerned about our calling, we're more trying to protect ourselves and we're more trying to find our social media platform and our followers and all these things and make our name known as opposed to making his name known. And as opposed to us living out our calling for the intention of God to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And that, I think, is God's heart for us right now. And the area that I I feel challenged myself, clearly, the area that I feel like we need to turn as a church, not this vintage church, as a church in America, we have to turn. Otherwise, tomorrow, tomorrow, persecution can be on our doorstep. But we're trying to preserve and protect ourselves. And what we think and what we sing in these songs, we think we'll be able to do it, but because we are so overly concerned with our lives and protection, we can't endure. And our prayer is not, God, give me grace to endure. But our prayer is, God, let me escape. But maybe he wants us to endure. 
Maybe he wants us to face these things. Maybe he wants us to be hated by all men. And that, I think, is the challenge. And that, in this passage, is what Paul is encouraging us with. That is what he is exhorting us to find our story and our calling in light of his story and his calling. Let's pray. Lord, these are not easy things. In fact, God, these are things that are very anti our own nature as humans. Lord, we don't want suffering. Lord, we don't want pain. In fact, we more times than not want to preserve our own lives, protect our own lives. But God, I know that that is not the message of the gospel. You've called us to come and die. And there are so few ways I realize that we might experience that or we might be able to walk in that. And we don't look for suffering. We don't look for those things. But Lord, in whatever those ways are that we can come and die, would you speak to us? Whatever the things are that we can surrender in a deeper way, would you speak to us and give us the grace to surrender those things? Lord, these passages are hard to understand many times. But God, if anything from this morning happens, I pray for us in this room that you would lead us to your feet, that you would open our eyes to the person of Jesus. And that we would be conformed to your image, not just that image of glory, of resurrection power, but the image of what you experienced on the earth, the hate, the suffering, the persecution. We don't pray to be conformed to that image often, but we want to, God. We want to sacrifice the way that Jesus did. So, Lord, would you help us? This is not something we have the strength to do. But we know that you can give us grace. Help us to understand our calling in light of your eternal purposes. In Jesus' name.